Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I look at a small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. And in this episode, I'll be looking at nine, really eight, I won't say much about one of them, but but nine of Charles Chestnut's uncollected stories. Um, now, as is common with these Library of America volumes, especially authors like Chestnut, where their, their works are kind of compact, you get like a couple of their big novels, maybe some of their collected fiction, and then things that are important but weren't anthologized in their lifetime tend to get shoved at the end. But of course, some writers who are more notable or, or more known for writing short stories will have whole volumes of short stories, you know, like I think there's three volumes of, of Singer. Hawthorne has one big thick volume of his short fiction, and I think there's five or six uh, for for Henry James. So... Um, you know, looking at these these short stories systematically is something I will be doing a lot in this podcast. But you know, mostly I, for the last year since I started this, I've been mostly focusing on on the novels uh, by various writers. But it's it's worth looking at the, at these stories just because they weren't collected in his lifetime doesn't mean they don't have important themes or they don't connect to understanding um, Charles Chestnut. That said, though, I, I think there's not that much we learn about Charles Chestnut that we don't really know about him. So it's, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time with these nine stories, but this is going to quickly get us to the end of this series on Chestnut. I'll have one more episode where I'll talk about some of his essays, and that might even be shorter because the essays are actually quite straightforward. So anyways, of these nine stories, four are, are Julius tales that did not fit into The Conjure Woman. And I think the way, reason they don't fit into The Conjure Woman is they they weren't really about magic and conjuring goofering and those those issues now there is supernatural elements to some of them but it's not as clear um now they're very much uncle julia stories though because they're about the legacy of slavery they're about this old man remembering his time in slavery and reporting on it to white people from the north who came to live in the south so structurally they're very similar but they don't they don't fit quite thematically into into what was going on in The Conjure Woman. So it makes sense that they weren't included. Now, I think three of these four tales were published in his lifetime around the time he was writing those Uncle Julius tales. One, however, came later. Now, thematically, there's probably not much new in these stories that we don't get in The Conjure Woman or in his other tales, but I will I will talk about them. And then we have five unrelated tales, of which only four are really about the color line. One, the last story in this collection, called The Kiss is really not about race at all. It, it's actually, I don't, I didn't like it very much. So that's one I'll just, uh, just to talk about it in the most general terms. So anyways, I'll, I'll just jump into these stories. And if you're interested in, in knowing a little bit about these, I, I urge you to go, just go read them. Um, but I'll try to give you my thoughts on, on them just for the sake of completeness. And because I'm insane and that's this is my format for this for this podcast. Okay, so let's start with the with the Julius stories, the four Julius stories that weren't in the Conjure Woman. Um, the first is is Dave's necklace, spelled N E K N E C K L I S S necklace. Originally published in eighteen eighty nine, 
And you see right away why it wasn't in The Conjuring Woman, because it's not really about the supernatural at all. It's really about psychology. And it's, there's a bit of a romance subplot to it. But it really is about the clear brutality and violence and, and horrible legacies of slavery. In this story, Julius is enjoying ham with his employer, this white family who came to the South to open up this grape vineyard. And if you don't know about the Julius Tales, I urge you to go back and listen to my episode on The Conjure Woman, where I go into more detail about these. Um, and then Julius starts crying, and then they kind of dig out, like, why are you crying? And then Julius tells his employer a story about a slave and a piece of ham. Now, one theme that's in The Conjure Woman stories is that Julius always seems to be trying to get an advantage over his employer to make some money on the side or to help a family member or something like that. And these stories, though, I think we can take them reliably, him as a reliable narrator about what happened in slavery, even if we reject the supernatural elements of it. There's still him, him using these stories to try to improve his contemporary situation. That's not really going on in Dave's Necklace. That's not going on in a couple of these stories, actually. So that's another reason it doesn't quite, they don't quite fit into The Conjure Woman. So, but as always, he's telling stories about the time during slavery. And in this case, we have a slave named Dave who is presented initially as a very good slave from the white perspective, from the slaveholder's point of view. He reads the Bible. He reads, but he only, he only kind of reads the Bible. And he's just very loyal and dutiful, and he, he does everything he's asked to. So he's, he's kind of the good slave. And then he falls in love with a woman named Dilsey, but another slave who's jealous of, of Dave for his situation on the plantation and for mostly for Dilsey frames Dave with the theft of ham from the smokehouse. Dave is eventually punished by being forced to wear a ham around a chain on his neck. And he slowly goes insane through this type of punishment because it's a, it's a huge heavy ham and it wears down on him. And eventually he kind of loses his mind and he eventually hangs himself in the smokehouse thinking that he has turned into a ham and is preparing himself for, for curing. So that's that's the story. Yeah, it's just a straight up story about discipline and violence in the plantation south. And I would say if you had to read one of these Uncle Julius stories that aren't in The Conjure Woman, I would say read Dave's Necklace. And again, like something I talked about with The Conjure Woman was that, yeah, even if these stories are fanciful to a degree and made up, I, I think we can trust that the basic events that he describes took place on plantations slaves were punished families were broken up you know they, they there was this violence slaves did die early death all the things he describes really did happen so in the, the sense that he's narrating how horrible slavery was i think he should be a trustworthy he should be considered a trustworthy narrative narrator narrator next we have a deep sleeper this was published in 1893 so this is still before the conjure woman was published and basically the the white narrator is trying to get julius to do some work basically to get a wheelbarrow down to hold up some watermelons before they're they go bad and they want to have them and then he he wants to avoid work so he goes into this story this is a more classic actually uncle julius tale where he's trying to avoid this work. So he tells this story about a man who slept for an entire year. So in a way, the story isn't about watermelons at all. It doesn't connect to that at all. It's just, Julius is just wasting time in this story. 
basically. And so kind of the, the deep sleeper is, of course, referring to the character. His name is Scundus. And the story really revolves around him sleeping. It's not maybe not a year, like for a whole month. He's sleeping for a month and he's courting a slave, Cindy. So this has a bit of overlap with Dave Necklace in that he's talking about relationships in, in slave marriages. Um, but they get married and then Skunkus goes into this deep sleep. He disappears and and that's and he just goes on with it and it covers up most of the story most of the length of the story and what happens then is by the time the story's over the watermelon is is already gone and taken so he kind of got out of out of work out of having to do that job so that's that's a deep sleeper lonesome ben published in 1900 this has some interesting elements in it it's 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 about clay eating and earth eating and and the eating of dirt in in the south which is a real tradition i actually looked this up and there are cuisine traditions on the eating of dirt of earth in the american south so anyways, the wikipedia article on geophagia this is the eating of dirt talks about different uh, cultural examples of geophagia and some historical ones as, as well and so we have David Livingston, the, the missionary who went to Africa, talking about it being done in Zanzibar. Uh, where else do we got? There's also a large number of slaves brought them the soil eating practices when they're shipped to the New World as part of the transatlantic slave trade. So this is one idea that the slaves brought this tradition of eating dirt, dirt. Quote, this is from Wikipedia. Slaves who practiced geophagia were nicknamed clay eaters because they were known to consume clay as well as spices, ash, chalk, grass, plaster, paint, and starch. In more recent times, according to Dixie's Forgotten People, the South's poor whites, geophagia was common among the poor whites in the southern eastern United States in the 19th and 20th centuries and was often ridiculed in popular literature. The literature also states that many men believe that eating clay increased sexual prowess as some females claim that eating clay helped pregnant women have an easy delivery. Geophagias may have been the high the cause of high prevalence of hookworm diseases. So, um, there, there's no mention here of this story, uh, Lonesome Ben. And then there's this Vice article called by N. Ernel Rude. This is June 2015. The American South is still eating white dirt. And then there's a long article, a kind of an interview about this this culinary practice it's actually a developed culinary practice um now it's not that they're living off dirt obviously you can't do that but it, it's something they eat you know as, as part of their diet for whatever reasons the same way people might eat rhino horn because if it is if it, if it, if it is an aphrodisiac for other reasons so this is something i don't know much about and this is my first exposure to it in fact the first time i read the charles chestnut collection here i didn't even bother with these stories after the marrow of tradition i just left them go but so the narrator, this story is also, though, about efforts to reform and revitalize the South. We get a couple mentions of that. The narrator talks about how his wife comes from a reforming family and would want to kind of clean up practices, especially like this in the South. And the setup for the story is actually a capitalist coming into the town to start up a cotton textile mill. And the capitalist wants to use clay from the riverbanks. And then Julius warns against this. And this is when they see a woman eating, eating clay. So here's the quote. 
After leaving his ho this house, our road lay through a cotton field for a short distance, and then we entered a strip of woods through which ran a little stream besides which I had observed the clay. We stopped at the creek, the road by which we have come crossing it, and continued over the land of my neighbor, Colonel Pemberton. On the roadside of my own land, a bank of clay rose in almost sheer perpendicular for about 10 feet, evidently extending back some distance in the low pine-clad hills behind it, and having also frontage upon the creek. There were marks of bare feet on the ground along the base of the bank, and the face it seemed freshly disturbed and scored with finger marks as though children had been playing there. And then Julius explain some things about this and then to continue while we were waiting a white woman wearing a homespun dress and slat bonnet came down from the road to the other side of the creek lifting her skirt slightly waded with bare feet across the saddle stream stream reaching the clay bank she stooped and gathered from it with the aid of a convenient stick a quantity of the clay which she had pressed together in the form of a ball she had not seen us at first and bushes partially screening us, but when, having secured this clay, she turned her face in our direction and caught sight of us watching her, she hid the lump of clay in her pockets with a shamefaced look and hurried away by the road she had come. So this is the setup for the story that Julius goes into, the story of Lonesome Ben, which goes also into how he used to engage in the practice of eating clay from the riverbanks. And this is less a story of the supernatural or even so much a story about slavery as much it is is really a very fascinating vignette into this element of southern culture that seems to maybe partially have come from africa and then influenced the poor whites and it seems to even survive today in southern cuisine so you know, I, I say check this out if you're interested in this phenomenon and if you know anything about this please let me know it's something i would i wish i knew a little bit more about and then we get to the final of the Julius tales, The Dumb Witness, not published during his lifetime. And it's actually hardly a Julius tale at all. He, he's there, but he doesn't take center stage. He doesn't tell a story. So in this sense, it's the one Julius tale that's not a Julius tale. It's, it's the one where he's, not, he's just an observer of these events. And in fact, the story seems to almost be a first draft, or maybe it was a rehashing. I don't know when it was written. But it seems to be really a setup for what's going on in the marrow of tradition which is a story about the color line and inheritance and the legalities of passing on property across the color line. Um, this comes up a little bit in The House Behind the Cedars with the relationship between um, the Warwick, you know, I forgot his name for a moment, Warwick and his father who didn't, leave, who didn't write a will so no property could pass on to his illegitimate children. And then of course there's a couple wills in the marrow of tradition that are centered to the plot, both of which deal with passing property through the color line. In one case, it's a benevolent benefactor, uh, Mr. Delamere. In the other case, it's a man who's trying to get property to his wife and his daughter, who most of society and most everyone else thinks is legitimate. So that's it's something that's on Chestnut's mind a lot here. And in fact, one of the other stories we'll look at in a few minutes actually is also about interracial marriage and what that means. So basically, it's a story who has a longtime slave mistress, but he wants to marry a white woman. The slave eventually drives this white woman away out of jealousy. And later she learns of the man's inheritance that he got all this money and she keeps it a secret. She keeps it a secret for long years. And that's what that's what the title comes from, the dumb witness. It's not that she's stupid. It's, it's that she refuses to speak. Uh, and she keeps the secret for several long years, finally driving this man who she, some, she basically considers a husband mad and then he goes to an early grave. 
Only then does she reveal the story, allowing the property to pass on to to his brother. So it's about jealousy and the that come when white men had long-term relationships with these slaves and then would you know try to marry a white woman and try to get a proper marriage and that the, the psychological conflicts that caused and the tensions that caused within these these very intimate relationships so that's again it's not looking at the uncle julius story julius is just sort of there but it it's interesting it, it has but again, at the same time, it's not doing anything that Mayor of Tradition doesn't already do. Um, so that's all of the Uncle Julius tales. Um, they're all worth reading. And, you know, I think the read The Conjure Woman and then read these four and you'll get a good window into what they're about. I just think there's such a brilliant way of getting at the reality of slavery and looking at them as the narratives of how the white North came to understand what slavery was from the slaves themselves. I think it's significant. And of course, this is a big issue in the 1930s when you have, you know, during the Great Depression, the U.S. government hired all these writers and teachers and scholars who lost their jobs or were unemployed, sent them to the South. And a lot of what they did was interview these slaves. And so even though these were written 30 years before the WPA, these programs it's part of the same process and you know there's volumes and volumes of these interviews given by wpa workers or given by slaves to wpa workers in in the 30s so it's it's part of the process of of white non-southerners learning what slavery was about you know in, in all its its horrors okay and then we can jump to the other stories that in, in a way if these first four were were rejects from the Conjure Woman, these last five, you know, we can kind of say would have been stories that, that could have fit in most cases into the wife of his youth, but either because he wrote them later or for whatever reason he didn't include them in there, they, they didn't show up in that work. Actually, I think most of these were written after The Wife of His Youth was published. So, yeah, the, the first of these, March of Progress, 1901. So these are stories he wrote after it. But many often they, they would have fit into that collection. If you were to add these to the wife of his youth, you wouldn't notice that they're, they're a big break in his, his perspective. Uh, with one exception. Two exceptions, I guess. Two are not about race at all. Actually, I said before one, but actually it's two of them are not about the color line at all. So, but, okay, the first, The March of Progress. This was published in 1901. This is a story about a white teacher who has long taught black children in a southern town. And so we get this narrative of Northerners coming down in the Reconstruction years, setting up schools and trying to help with uplift and, and, and helping to train black kids. The school, though, has three board members. They're all black. Two are members of the middle class. One is is poor and older and has kind of more in the legacy of slavery. He speaks in dialect. So he very much speaks like Uncle Julius does. The two middle class members basically don't want to renew her contract because there's just this new graduate, an African-American who they want to hire because this is the symbol. Like, this is progress for us. We've, this is what we've been waiting for, right? We've been training our teachers so these teachers can come back and, and educate our kids. And so we want to kind of end the contract with this older white woman. The older white woman, though, needs money, although there's kind of this doubt of how much money she actually has. In reality, she's, she's rarely destitute. 
it's the older man who stands up and vouches for this white woman and then the others relent to him and and on one level it seems like this is stopping the march of progress but soon after renewing the contract the old teacher dies so there's a couple things here in the story one is there's a bit of optimism about interracial cooperation and that there is this outreach this attempt to educate them and there is respect for that especially among older the uneducated generation the generation that came out of slavery they really appreciate that and honor that and that's basically what this older man says that the younger men the upper middle the middle class people the educated people don't necessarily appreciate what has been you know hot with the help that these people provided in in the era of reconstruction um, but then it's also about the, the reality that this progress is taking place and i think looking at these stories chestnut like du bois had this strong belief in in progress through education and through law and and institutions maybe chestnut believed a little bit more strongly in the influence of the north and how it could help the south but even du bois i've started reading his works for my next series he also believes strongly in the role of education as key so it's it's a nice little tale about second guessing how you know this this kind of rush to progress and appreciating the old teacher and if you're if you are one of these old teachers you, you might care for this story um, next 1904 Baxter's Procrustes this is actually not about the color line so it's fairly famous though it, it's I found a lot of references to it online it, it's kind of a humorous comedic tale making fun of elite social clubs that were popular among the middle and upper classes in the south it's got i think it's notable because it's an all-white cast by a black writer maybe not so uncommon now but in those days if you read like i've if you look at those harlem renaissance books they're they're all of course by black writers but they have black casts it's it's pretty rare to have a story in which in this time period where black writers would write just about white people talking to each other and doing their thing now it seems that chestnut has some familiarity with these these clubs this is a particular club that's really interested in rare books and that's what they get together for they collect rare books and sell them off and it's really about the shenanigans involved in the purchasing of a book but chestnut's main goal i think here is just to mock these these people so there it is baxter's pro crusts um the doll this this was this is the next tale this was published posthumously and this is a really tense tale you have a you have a black man who runs a barbershop and he's got this young girl so he goes off to work and while at work he meets this white man who comes in and he's with someone else it's it's colonel foresight comes in and he gets his haircut and during the haircut the colonel starts to talk about race and the color line and he talks about things like you don't understand you northerners don't understand about how the color line works and he kind of laments how you know the the violence of reconstruction the civil war is is over so here's what he says. He says, the Negro problem is a perfectly simple one. And then someone else says, well, you know, what about the tariff or something? And and he says, 
This is much more complicated than the Negro problem, which is perfectly simple. Quote, let the white man once impress the Negro with his superiority. Let the Negro see that there's no escape from the inevitable, and that ends it. The best thing about the Negro is that, with all his limitations, he can recognize a finality. It is the secret of his persistence among us. He has acquired the faculty of evolution uh, by the law of the survival of the fittest. Long ago, when a young man, I, I killed a Negro to teach him his place. One he he one who learns the lesson of this sort certainly never offends again, nor fathers any other of his breed. End quote. So then he tells the story about how he killed this this man, and this is something the barber remembers because this is, is was his father who was killed, and he witnessed it. And so then the rest of the story is the barber basically deciding if he should seek vengeance on on the man. So about halfway into the story. The narration shifts to the mind of this barber while he's working with this deadly weapon, a scissors, thinking what he should do about the realization that the man who killed his father is right there in front of him at his mercy. And he wants to do it. It's, it's not cowardice that that stops him. It's, it's his duty to his daughter that helps him. And that's where the doll comes into play because he thinks about his daughter Daisy's doll and this leads him to hold his hand. So he has a duty to his daughter that his father couldn't fulfill it to him because he was murdered, but he can fulfill it. So it's not an optimistic tale in that it, it somehow thinks reconciliation is possible. It's it's sort of, again, about this march of progress that you have to look to the future, that getting we, we need to get behind beyond the past. We can't let these burdens stop, stop progress. And th this is a lesson both to... I think whites and blacks in a lot of chestnuts work is he's so bothered by the fact that this kind of unbearable, this horrendous burden of the color line is comes from us from the past. It, you see it in, again and again in his stories. It's always there and it, it comes up and it interferes in our lives, interferes with our thoughts, our legal systems, our humanity, our basic humanity gets disrupted by, by the color line. So that's, that's the doll, a really good tale actually. Then we have White Weeds. I think this was also published after he died. Um, it's a story set in the North. It's, it's about miscegenation, about interracial marriages. And so a man receives a letter on his wedding day, which suggests that his bride is black. Well, that she has black blood. And we'll, we'll talk in the next episode about Chestnut's clear definitive views on the color line. And where it is you know i think at, at one point like I, I actually just read du bois's obituary to chestnut and du bois basically calls chestnut a white man who chose to be black who chose to be identified as black i don't know if that's how chestnut would see it but you know it's on his mind because he writes so much about passing and so this is an, another story about passing and it has some similarities with the house behind the cedars because the Rena in that story was trying to do the same thing that apparently this woman was trying to do. This one's a little bit more over the top, though. I think House Behind the Cedars does a better job of dealing with this theme. But anyways, he gets this letter saying that she has black blood. And he's a Southerner. He's from the South. He's very racist. And he thinks about what he should do. He, he talks to his friend, and his friend's like, just forget about it. It's just a letter and big deal. She's beautiful. and She's, she's not black. Don't worry about it. But he can't get it out of his head, and he's promised his mother that he would never infect his family's his hair his heritage and his 
um, descendants with black blood. So Carson, that's in the guy's name, uh, he can't let it go. But he refuses to confront his wife-to-be about this until the wedding night. So he does it on the wedding night, and this kind of really spoils the wedding night. They end up not having sex. This angers her, and it kind of lays this doubt down for their entire marriage. He does try to explain to her, though, how racism is a part of him. It's kind of into down to his heritage. The same way the racists thought like black blood was something that's kind of in you. It can't be extracted. So anyways, they don't consummate the marriage. She refuses to answer any of his questions about it. And he soon dies. He, he, I guess he dies of anxiety. He's just so bothered by this. He, so he's driven to an early death by this thought that this woman he married could be black. And at the funeral, she dresses all in white and she plays wedding music. I think she plays like the wedding music from Lohengrin and other, other place, places. And then at the funeral, this man who's kind of been here throughout, he's the first man who gave the advice to Carson to just drop it. He kind of has the last word in the story. That basically is talking about the deep flaws and, uh, and flaws of judgment that the color line brings to people. It's, it's the stupid decisions people make because of the color line. And he says, I've always wondered to which of the three courses open to Carson he adopted. To postpone the marriage, to burn the letter, or to ask her frankly whether his contents were true. It seems that he did all three. He asked whether or not the statement was true. He burned the letter and married her without mentioning it. And he deferred the marriage, the real marriage. It was the order in which he did this that destroyed the happiness and shortened his life. And all, said Professor Gilman, for nothing, absolutely nothing. What malicious mind conceived and wrote the letter? Miss Carson never learned, but that there was not a word of truth in it. Her blood is as entirely pure as Professor Carson's could have been. My wife knew her people in her line of descent for 200 years. It's quite as clear, quite as good as that of most old American families. Oh, but here come the ladies. Um, so we don't actually get a clear answer to uh, this question, but um, there it is. It's it's a, just another story of Chestnut Sword, a lot of these, about how the color line kind of comes back to haunt us years after, after the end of slavery. The last tale in this collection is called The Kiss. It was published posthumously. It's really a dramatic tale about adultery in which a woman must decide if she will kiss her dying and infectious husband despite her adultery. Um, it's not really about race, so I won't say much about it. It, it is, though, like other Chestnut's other stories in that it's about the burdens of the past and how we wear masks to try to cover up our past sins and manage them. And, and it, it's also kind of saying that we need to deal with this. It's, it's not something we continue to let eat away at us like a cancer and you know that's it that's the kiss so i think there's some thematic connections to it but it's not really about race at all so that does it for the stories of charles chestnut you can join this with the stories in the wife of his youth and the conjured woman and that's a pretty good I, he may have wrote others but I, I don't know of them so this just leaves a handful of short essays that he wrote uh, throughout his life and I'll deal with those in the next episode. So, uh, and then we'll be done with Chestnut. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any own comments about these stories, if you read them or thought about them, please let me know your thinking on this. Please, you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'd very much like to hear from you. And um, that's it. So I'll be back next time with the some essays by Charles Chestnut and my final thoughts about this, this great um, writer. Yeah.